Well, we are working our way through the Gospel of Luke, and uh, we've seen Jesus and John the Baptist uh, be born, but aside from that uh, incident when, he was, when Jesus was 12 and was in the temple that we looked at last week where he was uh, astounding those religious leaders in the temple, we haven't really uh, seen, and, and we won't see, and Scripture doesn't explain or describe the rest of uh, their lives from birth until 30, when both of them burst on the scene in their ministries. All we get from Luke is a summary. Uh, John grows and becomes strong in spirit in the wilderness. That's in Luke 1, uh, verse 80. And Jesus grows and increases in wisdom and favor with God and man. That's chapter 2, verse 52. So their lives, essentially from birth to 30, have been relatively nondescript, uh, kind of living in obscurity until our text today, where John bursts upon the scene at age 30. Our text is Luke chapter 3, verses 1 through 14. If you have your Bibles with you, as always, I'd encourage you to open them up and follow along. If you don't have a Bible, what would like to follow along, you can Find a Bible in front of you in the row underneath, and uh, you'll find our passage on page 858. Luke chapter 3, verses 1 through 14. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain And hills shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough place shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the tree. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And what, are, and what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. So Luke tells us that John began his preaching ministry in the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar. Now, scholars are a little bit 
in debate on wh what year exactly that is, and that's, that's based on how uh, kind of the, the transfer of power happened and when exactly this would have been, but we'll say for, for argument's sake that it was around A.D. 28. It was around then. That's when John began his preaching ministry, but if we think back to the history of Israel, if we just step back a little bit and think about what the nation in its history has gone through, and then take us up to this present time with Tiberius, you, you really think it's, it's been a rough go for the nation of Israel for a long time. Really, their, their glory years were the, the years of, of David and Solomon. And then if you've read through your Bible, and hopefully uh, this year, if you're reading through it, you'll get to these points. Uh, after Solomon dies, the kingdom is split, Israel to the north and Judah to the south. Uh, there's a civil war that erupts that breaks the nation in two, and, and Israel to the north is the more wicked of the two nations, and, and it is decimated by Assyria in 722 B.C. Judah to the south, uh, more righteous, but not all that righteous in and of itself, is then conquered and uh, the temple destroyed by Babylon in 586 B.C., and then, if you were here during our Daniel series, you know that, that after uh, Babylon hauls away the exiles and they return back to Israel and they rebuild a temple that really was a shadow of its former self, uh, there is this time period, the intertestamental period, where, where this, the nation goes through a lot of suffering and hardship because of this, these Greek kings that are to the north and south that kind of press Israel in, a, almost like in a vase or a vice grip. And eventually, that dreaded fourth kingdom that Daniel prophesied about, Rome, the one that would come in and, and be a, a, an iron beast that would crush everything in its way and rule with an iron fist. Eventually, Rome did come about. And that's what Israel is in now. It brings us up to this time, a 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. On top of all of that, God has been silent. Silent for 400 years. The last time he spoke through a prophet was the prophet Malachi. And so God has been silent. Israel has been going through immense hardship, uh, being kind of run roughshod over by power after power after power. And now, just as John is about to come out and begin preaching, we hear that Tiberius Caesar has been reigning for 15 years. And I wonder what was that like when I uh, looked it up this week? What, what, was, what was it like living under Tiberius Caesar? Well, he was the successor to Caesar Augustus, who you remember was the Caesar, uh, you've probably heard uh, you know, the, the Christmas story read many times, Caesar Augustus sent out the decree that all the world should be taxed. Well, Tiberius followed after Augustus. And Tiberius, uh, according to ancient historians like Suetonius, he was not as bad as, say, Caligula or Nero, but saying that he wasn't as bad as them uh, is like saying, yeah, we finished in last place, but at least we didn't go winless. I mean, essentially, Tiberius was not that great of a guy either. He was, according to Suetonius, he was a big, strong man. He, he said that he could take a 
a sound apple, you know, not a rotten one, but a, a hard, crisp apple, and bore through it with a finger all the way through the end, which is pretty impressive to me. This guy not only could bore through an apple with his finger, but he also said could crush the head of a young man with one whip of a bat or something like that. Uh, so he doesn't sound like he was a, a very nice guy. He was cruel, according to Suetonius, cold-blooded, and in his later years, like the time that we're talking about now, uh, he was filled with paranoia. Well, thankfully, he didn't reign directly over them. I mean, he was reigning, but he ruled that area through guys that ruled under him, guys he placed in charge. And we see their names here. We see guys like Pontius Pilate and Herod Antipas. Well, what were they like? Well, Pontius Pilate was cruel. Pontius Pilate was known to be uncaring, somewhat incompetent. And according to historian Josephus, he actually did things that created tension all the time and created violent situations among the people. Herod Antipas, this Herod that, we're, that we hear about here, he was the son of Herod the Great. And he was actually put in charge of that area of Galilee after Rome removed his brother Archelaus. And the reason Rome removed his brother was because they thought his brother was too cruel. That tells you something. I mean, if Rome thinks you're too cruel, how bad were you? So these people had Archelaus first. He's removed for, due to cruelty, and Herod Antipas is put in place. And he was a horribly wicked man. Herod Antipas stole his brother's wife and married her with his brother still alive and then when John the Baptist came out and spoke against it, he had John the Baptist imprisoned and then eventually beheaded for speaking out against his sin. Now, if things couldn't get any darker, Luke reminds us that it was also during the time of the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. Now, you read that and even, you know, you see in the Greek there, it's the high priesthood, singular, of two men, Annas and Caiaphas. You say, well, wait a second. How can there be two if it's one, one high priesthood? And, and furthermore, isn't there only supposed to be one high priest? Yes. The high priest, Annas, was removed by Rome, and they put Caiaphas in his place. So technically, at that point in time, Caiaphas was kind of this just high priest that Rome decided they'd rather have. And so he was technically the high priest, the one. You see this in John 18, 13. But to the Jews, the high priest was this position that, was, that you had till death. There's not supposed to be this kind of shuffling around of high priests. And so to the Jews that lived there, Annas was still really the high priest. And so Annas kind of became the power behind the power. He was the, the shadow government behind Caiaphas. And so you, you had this weird dual rule going on that you actually find in the Gospels when Jesus is going to be crucified. And, and you see him going to Annas and Caiaphas. And you're thinking, well, what's, what's going on here? Furthermore, Annas, according to scholars, was really in it for the money. He was in it for the power. He was in it for the wealth. And Annas wanted to solidify, and I think he and his family held on to the high priesthood for something like 40 years because he kept making sure that it got passed down to his children. And so rather than the, than the high priesthood being this 
righteous position and righteous family that, that, that represented the people before God. It was, it was kind of like the first century version of the Corleone family. It just, it was bad all the way around. Now, why bring this up? Why is Luke writing about all of these people? Well, I think for two reasons. One, it's because Luke is reminding us again that he is writing history. We are about to read from about this point on a lot of incredible things that Jesus of Nazareth says and does. All of these amazing things are, we will see, miraculous, unbelievable, things that you think defy nature. Well, Luke is saying, yes, he did all these things, and he did all these things in history. Luke's not beginning with a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away there was this guy named Jesus. No, in the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar, these things happened. You can do a Google search of all the names of these people, and you'll find them. They're all there. They're attested to by other ancient historians, by modern historians. They attest to all of these. In fact, what you'll see for probably all of these guys at some level, but at least some of them for sure, is that their historical significance now is greatly enhanced by their connection to Jesus. Someone like Pontius Pilate would have been forgotten by history, but it would have been a footnote in history, except when you type in and Google Pontius Pilate, right away it comes up, he was the governor who sanctioned the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Jesus has now validated the history of these men. But secondly, I think Luke tells us these names because he wants us to know how dark it was just before the dawn. Can you imagine what it must have been like to be an average citizen in that time, living in that land? We are privileged to take part in our government. We, we have an election coming up. We, we, we are privileged and we're used to being able to go to the polls and vote for who we want and, and make our voice heard. And and who, if, even if we lose, what, 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 do we, what do we really lose? Well, maybe eight years' worth of a guy that we didn't vote for, but sometimes only four years' worth of a guy we didn't vote Imagine having no say. Imagine just having some tyrant who's cruel and mean and vicious, and you have no say, and he reigns over you for as long as he wants or until he dies or is killed by somebody else. That's, that's your lot in life. That's what it was like. You see, Luke's first statement fixes the date. It's in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. He could have stopped there. That fixes the date. Why go on? Well, the rest of the names are given to remind us of the cultural climate, the political situation that those people were living under in A.D. 28. And it is into this darkness that Luke says the word of God burst forth. He says here, the word of God came to John. Now, that is a very precisely worded phrase. That phrase, the word of God came to John, I think is chosen on purpose by Luke because it is the exact phrase that is used 
over and over again of Old Testament prophets. If you go back and read through the prophets, you'll see again and again, the Word of God came to Elijah. The Word of God came to Jeremiah. The Word of God came to Isaiah. Over and over again, all of these guys, that's the phrase that is spoken of. And so what I think Luke is doing here is he's purposefully placing John in the stream of Old Testament prophets. I remember R.C. Sproul saying he used to trick his classes and, and ask, who was the greatest Old Testament prophet? And, you know, you get all those kind of names, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Elijah, you say, no, no, it's John the Baptist. See, nobody thinks of John as an Old Testament prophet, but that's exactly what he is. He was the last and greatest of them because he was the one who proclaimed and was the forerunner of the Messiah. Now, <coughs> notice that Luke not only says that the Word of God came to John, but then he on purpose takes us back to the prophet Isaiah. He, he wants again to see John in this stream of prophetic writings. Look at verses 3 through 6. John went into all the region around the Jordan proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. It's very poetic language there, but what they used to do when a great king would enter a town, they would make sure, you remember, didn't this just recently happen? Didn't San Francisco like clean up its streets for like, like ch the Chinese president or something? That, that's what they used to do then too. If some great king was coming into town, the streets would get cleaned up, everything would be put away, the rubble removed, and everything made nice. Well, what if God enters the, the, the place? If God's coming into town, you don't just clean the rubble off, you level the mountains, you raise the, the valleys, you, you make the entire earth a level plain for God to come. John himself, when he is asked, who are you? In, in, the, in the gospel of John, people are asking him, who are you? Are you Elijah? No, I'm not. Are you the, the prophet? That's, no, I'm not. Well, then who are you? What does John answer? He goes right back to Isaiah chapter 40 again. He says, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. That section there is Isaiah chapter 40. Now why? Why do they keep going back to that? Why is Isaiah chapter 40 so important and what does it have in connection with John? Well, I think if you go back and you read Isaiah... It is Isaiah chapter 40 that really marks the turning point in the entire book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapters 1 through 39 are essentially chapters of judgment. Judgment on Israel, judgment on Judah, judgment on the nations that God's going to use to judge them. There's judgment all throughout chapters 1 through 39. And then you get to chapter 40, and it opens with comfort. Comfort my people, says your God. If you've never read through Isaiah, like in one sitting, you should do it sometime. Because it's amazing how, how much the, the tone changes in chapter 40. 
Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Every valley shall be lifted up, every mountain and hill made low, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. So, when John arrives on the scene, and he arrives as the voice crying in the wilderness, it's almost like God is saying, Isaiah 40 is here. The turning point has arrived. The Messiah that you read about all through chapters 40 through 66 is here now. Notice, however, what John preaches. It's in verses 7 through 9. Notice here that even though he's coming as the voice crying in the wilderness, even though he's coming as the one representing the turning point and the salvation that has arrived, he doesn't come out to the people preaching, hey, I've got good news. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. That's not his message. Look, look at his message. You brood of vipers. He's saying that to the people coming out to him. He's not, he's not walking the streets of Rome you know, pointing up at, at the pagan worshipers there and shouting at them, you brood of viper. These are the people coming out to him and he's shouting, you brood of viper. Can you imagine if I did that every day to you? This is the least seeker-sensitive sermon you're ever going to read. You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? You can imagine the reaction of the people especially these Jews that were coming out to him. What do you mean repent? You're telling us to repent? Have you looked around? Have you looked around at, at the sin, at the, at the Roman soldiers? Have, do you know what's going on? We're coming out to you and you're telling us we need to repent? John went around the text says, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The Jews practiced baptism at that time. But baptism wasn't for them. It was always for the Gentiles. It was called proselyte baptism. A Gentile that wanted to repent of their sins and, and become a Jew and become a, a part of a, the family of of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, they're the ones that need baptism. John, you're, you're talking to us. We're, we're children of Abraham. We, we, have, we have the law of Moses. We, we have the priests. We have the temple. We have the moral, civil, and ceremonial laws and stipulations. I mean, maybe we're not perfect, but we're not Rome. Why are you calling us to repent? The Jews were blood relatives of Abraham, that's true. But Scripture says that not all of them shared Abraham's faith. Paul says in Romans 9, For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Not all who are children of Abraham, because they are his, his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise who are counted as offspring. So John looks at them and calls them a brood of vipers. Sometimes we read that and we say, well, John, 
John was kind of a mean preacher, but Jesus was a nice preacher. Well, no, Jesus used those same exact words. Jesus called people exactly the same, you brood of vipers. Now, why are they saying that? Are they saying it just to be harsh? Are they saying it just to be mean? I don't think so. Remember in Genesis 3, when you read the creation account in Genesis 1 and 2, and then in Genesis 3, uh, you have Adam and Eve in the garden, and who comes on the scene to deceive them but the serpent? The serpent arrives, and it is Satan, and he deceives them into disobeying God, and it plunges the whole earth into sin, and God comes along, and, and when he spells out the curses, and you have that glimmer of the gospel in there, Genesis 3.15, what do you see? Well, God essentially divides the world into two categories of people. Those who are of the seed of the woman, Christ, and those who are of the seed of the serpent, Satan. So when John comes along and, and looks at them and says, you are a brood of vipers, he's doing what Jesus said to the Jewish leaders when he looked at them and said, your father is not Abraham, rather you're, you're sons of your father, the devil. This isn't just to be mean. He is saying to them, look, you think you're children of Abraham, but you're not. You are actually children of Satan who need to repent. He knew, he knew what they were thinking, the Jews could look around them, especially at the Romans. It would have been easy for them, I think, on a relative scale, they were living more righteously than the pagan Romans were. It would have been easy for them to point to the Romans and say, they need to repent. They need to get right with God. But the Jews, John is saying, are hypocrites. Notice what he says. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? In other words, what is he saying? Why are you coming to me to be baptized? That's what you need to ask yourself. You're coming out here to be baptized, but why? Are you coming to me to be baptized out of because you're grieving your sin? Or are you coming to me to be baptized to check off another religious box so that you're good with God? One scholar says this, the people came to the Jordan to get the latest theological and ecclesiastical provision to cover their sins. But they went into the water with no real sense of repentance, and they came out unconverted. If you go to the very start of the book of Isaiah, God essentially levels the Jews for being religious hypocrites, for going through the religious motions. He says to them, the reason that I'm going to bring judgment on you is because you've been going through the motions. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices? I've had enough. I've had enough of the burnt offerings of rams. I've had enough of the fat of well-fed beasts. I don't delight in the blood of bulls or lambs or goats. Don't bring me any more vain offerings. Incense that you burn is an abomination to me. I'm not going to listen anymore. I'm not going to listen to your prayers. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. John is essentially saying you're the same way. You are checking a religious box, aren't you? He says that's not what you need to do. Instead, you need to bear fruit 
in keeping with repentance. Even now, John says, the axe is being laid to the root of the trees. Every tree that doesn't bear good fruit is going to be burned up in the fire. It's going to be chopped down. Isn't that what we do with trees that don't bear fruit? I don't know. Some of you are probably plant a lot of trees. Michelle has. She plant, she's planted some fruit trees. I, I don't know if they're all going to make it or what, but if a tree dies and it's just dead branches, what, do you, what, do you, what else do you do with it? I mean, it wouldn't make any sense to go to the grocery store and buy nice apples and go staple them onto the rotten tree branches and pretend like it's a good tree. No, if, it, if it's not bearing fruit, it's dead. You chop it down and use it as firewood. So the crowds begin to ask John, what do we do? They all start coming in different categories of people. Regular people, tax collectors, soldiers. What do, you, what do we do then? What do we do? John says to them, well, to, to basically everyone, he says, look, be kind and generous. Care for those in need. To the tax collectors, look, don't collect more than you're authorized to collect. To soldiers, don't extort money. I know you walk around with swords and, and you can punish people for not doing it, but don't do that anymore. Be content with your wages. Now notice two things about this. Notice first that John does not outright condemn the occupations of tax collector or soldier. You know, some Christians might think that those occupations in and of themselves are bad. That's not true. God instituted government. Jesus tells people to pay their taxes. Paul says God instituted government to bear the sword against evildoers. There's nothing in here about you need to quit your job and stop being a soldier. No. The, the occupations are not sinful in and of themselves, but though there's nothing inherently sinful, they can be twisted like any job to be turned into and become a sinful profession. John is saying stop sinning in your, in your job. Notice too, if we take this in context of everything John is saying, he is not simply telling people to go do good deeds. Taken in isolation, that's what it might read. It might read like John is saying, what you need to do is do better. Do good deeds. But taken in context, these aren't good deeds that we go do. They are fruits of repentance that God works in us. That's what John is saying. See, just all we need to do is look around us. Yeah, we look around us, we do see a lot of sin these days. But you also see a lot of good. I, I get, I get a, a weekly, or it might even be daily, um, news feed in my email called 1440. I don't know why it's called that, but, uh, but it has, you know, gives you basically just here's the broad news of everything going on. And it's got a whole section in it called human kindness. And it always has like every day, you know, like five or six stories of wonderful things that are newsworthy that, that our neighbors out there are doing for each other, leaving massive tips for a waitress or all kinds of things. If you look around, you see that you don't have to be a Christian to do good things, relatively speaking, right? You don't have to be a, you don't, no, you don't have to be a Christian to be honest. You don't have to be a Christian to not steal from people. 
You don't have to be a Christian to give charity to the poor and needy. As I've mentioned before, I would much rather go, in fact, I think, if I, I don't know for sure, but I'm pretty sure my dentist is not a Christian. But he does good work on my teeth. I'd rather go to a dentist who is an ardent atheist but knows how to do good dental work and doesn't overcharge me than a Christian who loves the Lord and messes my teeth up. If he doesn't know how to do good dentistry, I don't want to see him. I don't care that he loves the Lord. I'm, proud, I'm glad he's my brother and I'll see him in heaven one day. But I'm not going to see him as a dentist. John isn't saying simply be a decent, honest citizen and you're fine. He's saying you need to bear fruits in keeping with repentance. What is repentance? Well, we just, we just stated it earlier in the service. Repentance is a saving grace by which a sinner, having truly realized his sin and grasped the mercy of God in Christ, does with grief and hatred of his own sin, turn from it unto God with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. Repentance is not something we can do in and of ourselves. It is a saving grace. Repentance is a work in us by the Holy Spirit before it ever shows itself by what we say or do. Repentance, this work created on us by the Spirit, has us grieving and hating our own sin. And then in that hatred and grief of our own sin, turning to Christ for salvation. We turn to Christ not simply to escape judgment, to check off a religious box, but because in Christ we see the mercy of God. And we see the love of God and we want to serve Him for the rest of our lives. That's repentance. Don't you see how that's miles away from just be a good person and be a good citizen? It, it's not even in the same ballpark. Sinclair Ferguson says this, justification is by faith alone. It's not by repentance. Faith is the individual trusting in Christ while repentance is that same individual quitting sin, and neither can exist apart from the other. John Murray says, we are incapable of faith until renewed by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, regeneration precedes faith. It is impossible, however, to separate faith from repentance. Saving faith is permeated with repentance, and repentance is permeated with faith. Repentance is not merely a change of mind in general, but it is particular and concrete. It is a change of mind with reference to particular sins. When we are regenerated by the Holy Spirit, good works begin to flow out of us because we want to. Our dead heart that was once dead has now been made alive. The heart that once despised Christ now loves Christ. It's like the tree that is, is alive. I don't think an apple tree that is alive thinks and tries really hard to grow apples. I don't, I mean, has anyone, I don't think we, we've ever read the mind of an apple tree, but they just grow. They just grow because it's alive. That's what happens when we repent by the power of the Holy Spirit. Like the tree, if it's alive, it will bear fruit. It can't help it. Now, I didn't uh, ask my dad's permission to say this, but, uh, so, but it's good. Um, he, w once he was saved, 
Uh, well, his friend, this, this uh, guy, Joe, has told me in the past, years ago, he said, Max, your dad is the most changed man I've ever known in my life. He said, the only person that was more changed than your dad was your mom. But my dad, who, according to his own account, uh, had a filthy mouth and all of this stuff, hated at first being around my mom when he first met her because she had a mouth worse than a sailor. So she was even like more grotesque in a sense than my dad. And this guy, Joe, who knew, knew both of them, knew my mom and when she was alive, said, Max, they're the two most changed people I've ever met in my life. I don't know what changed them so drastically from what they were to what they are now. And my dad has given them the same answer again and again and again for all these years. He said, Joe, I've been born again. It's Christ who's changing me. I didn't change myself. And again and again when Joe hears that that's the answer, he says, I don't want to hear that. What? Why? If, if this person is the most changed person you know and they give you the answer, why don't you want to hear it? He would rather my dad say, I, I bought 15 books and read them and I, and I I, I implemented all of, the, all of the recommendations. That's how I got this way. Joe would say, what books are they? Well, when my dad says, I've been born again by the power of the Holy Spirit, he says, no, not that. That's not the answer. You know, over the years, I've had the privilege of talking to lots of non-Christians about what being a Christian is all about, and none of them ever have a problem with doing good deeds. When I talk to them about being a nice person or doing good deeds, they all say, that's great, yeah, we should all do that. But the second that I start talking about repenting of sin, they don't want to hear it anymore. That's the part they don't want to hear. They begin to downplay their sin. They, they start comparing themselves to Hitler. Of course, right? Not that, I'm not, hey, I'm not Hitler. They begin to downplay God's standard of righteousness. I, God doesn't really demand that much, does he? I mean, aren't I good with God? They begin to talk about other people out there. Well, how about my neighbor? He's a nice guy. What about him? And, and I always have to try to say to them, look, I don't want to talk about Hitler. I don't want to talk about your neighbor. I want to talk about you. Are you a sinner? And what do you need to do to get right with God? And that's what they don't want to talk about. The, apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, repenting of our sin and fleeing to Christ is something we will not do. But the person who has been changed... The person who the Holy Spirit has worked on, who by the power of God has been brought to repentance, they will see their sin. They won't start looking around at everyone else. They will look at their own sin, and that will take up the picture, and they will flee to Christ. They won't run to the government to try to petition them to stop this person over here from doing this or this person over here. They'll run to the cross because they say, I need saving. I'm the sinner. What about you? As you sit here this morning, what do you think about yourself? Do you need to repent? You know, in closing, I'd, I'd just like to point out that this sermon from John 
this very first one that he gave is, is oftentimes seen as harsh. It's, it's oftentimes seen as insensitive. You, you may have thought that when I read it this morning. Wow, that's, that's quite harsh. I thought it when I read it this week. But why do we think that? Why do we think that this sermon is harsh? Think about it. Look at what John instructs people to do. He instructs people to stop stealing, to, to be kind, to, to give to the needy. He tells people to be honest and caring, and, and anyone can look at those words and say, wow, what a great message he gives to people. So why do we think he's being harsh? Isn't it, isn't it just because he's saying it like it is? Isn't it just because he's not masking the truth? What, what would you have him do? Do we, do we expect others to do this with regarding other things? If we saw someone in a road and a car was coming right towards them, aren't we supposed to yell, get out of the way, move, a car's coming? I'm sure they don't like hearing that, but what do we say? I'd rather not give them unpleasant news. You know, I don't, I don't want to hurt their feet. Boom! Like, that'd be ridiculous. Of course it would be ridiculous. So why does it upset us then when Scripture shouts, look out? When God says, my wrath is coming. And he says it again and again, the wrath of God is coming. Isn't it a gracious thing? That God says, my wrath is coming, here is my son. Flee to him. But, but you see, when, when preachers like John say that, when they just say, the wrath of God is coming, people say, that's mean. That's harsh. I don't want to hear that. They, they think the message is harsh. No, the message is the truth. And it's a gracious message. John does not give people what their itching ears want to hear. Instead, he calls them to repent. He tells them what they need to hear rather than what they want to hear. And that's what the Bible gives us. We are no longer looking forward towards the Messiah we are looking back at him. Isaiah 53 is no longer on the horizon somewhere in the future. Even when John came on the scene, the cross was in the future. Friends, we are on the other side of the cross and the empty tomb. Christ has won the war over sin and death. Won't you come to him today and receive that grace? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for your word. We're so thankful for your son. We're so thankful for preachers like John who didn't mince words but told people the truth that they need to repent. Lord, please help us today to repent of those things that we are unrepentant of, Lord. Help us to turn to Christ, not only for salvation, but every moment to be sanctified. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.